Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Hey, it's John here. The podcast hasn't technically started yet. It'll be long in a minute, I promise. But before we get going, I just wanted to basically ask you all for a favor. You're all very nice people. You've all been listening to us uh, enthusiastically, I hope. So, so now I want something in return. I'm not going to ask for money, don't worry. What I would like, though, is if you had five minutes to give us a nice review on iTunes and to tell your friends, because we'd like to get more people listening to this and we think you're the best people to help us do that. So... Go on, be nice, do us a favour. Anyway, that's the public service announcement over. I now return you to your normal podcast service. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm Barbara. And I'm John. And this week we're talking about... You know, I don't, I don't actually really know what we're, we're talking about. The plan to make this episode coherent has kind of collapsed, like the British government in the last couple of weeks. So, you know, but it's, it's going to be good. It's interesting. Let's just, just bear with me on this. So last time, as regular listeners will recall, uh, in our last episode, we were a little bit worried about the possibilities uh, that the UK was about to vote to leave the European Union. The good news on that is that we weren't being paranoid. Um, <laughs> and, and things are now looking a little bit horrific all round uh, and, and probably going to get worse. I mean, how are you feeling about it, Barbara? I feel like I've not yet hit the real despondency yet because there's been story after story after story and kind of work on the weekend and random labour resignations um but i'm sure i'm i'm about to hit that at some point but until then i've just been reading news stories instead of sitting feeling depressed yeah, i'm finding it a bit like a bereavement i keep kind of feeling like i've got my head around it and then some other aspect of it hits me uh, the full horror and i have to sit down and start all over again um to kind of help us through our hour of need here we're joined by our colleague stephanie boland with whom we're going to talk about uh identity and cities and why it is that by and large, it's Britain's cities were more likely to vote to remain than the countryside. Stephanie, you wrote a very interesting piece about your sense of identity uh, being tied up with 
um, having sort of traveled around Europe and had to sort of translate your work into a few different languages? Yes. Well, for me, it was kind of born out of going. There is, I think, increasingly for people, specifically of my generation, a feeling that we know people from all over the world, we travel all over the world. And what's been interesting to me in the fallout of um, the Brexit vote has been seeing people have a real visceral emotional reaction to the idea that we are not part of Europe. And I think it surprised a lot of a lot of people I know who have gone, I didn't realise I felt so European until our country went and we're not. Um, I don't know if that's the case with you, Barbara. Yeah, I think it's it's similar. I think also that when we're talking about these cities and why mysteriously this was the kind of the division, I think that people in cities do identify more with this sense of going places, of seeking things out and moving mm. around. Obviously that bears out in actual demographic data about you know most, most people in cities aren't necessarily born there. Whereas in rural areas, you're probably slightly more likely to be kind of born and bred from the same place. Um, but yeah, I think we get that kind of identity of being able to move, being able to strive, being able to go to a different place is something that I think a lot of people really identify with. And it's kind of a surprise because there was this idea that there was a British identity that was being called out to by the Leave campaigners. But it kind of is very sad that it turns out there was an equivalent one, mm. which I don't think Remain really managed to invoke very successfully which is why we're in this position now I personally think because you did a, a great post on the actual demographic breakdown and there, there is a really stark divide isn't there between rural and urban yeah so there's a rural and urban divide I mean an interesting aspect people aren't talking about too much is turnout because the problem is basically that Remainers were in cities Remainers didn't come and vote um, the turnout figures for a place like Manchester are very low, kind of in the 50s as opposed to in the 70s, which is the overall average. So that's kind of why I do feel like people did feel strongly that they wanted to remain, but there wasn't enough of that kind of groundswell of a feeling about it that got people out of their houses and down to polling stations. But it's a difficult thing, and I found it a, a difficult thing particularly, um, and I know this is something we've spoken about in the office in the week subsequent to the result coming out, there's been a lot of talking about people in the countryside and talking about leavers as being kind of stupid and self-defeating and suicidal and uh, this idea that you're naive as opposed to the liberal intelligentsia who live in cities <laughs> and know what's good for our country. Yeah, I mean, maybe not. I mean, the downside of all this kind of emotion on both sides is that emotion doesn't necessarily come with a big pamphlet full of facts and both sides tried that tactic probably more than they tried to inform people so I don't buy this idea that certain people are stupid and Remainers are really clever I think both sides actually did not have a grasp of the facts and really looking back I'd actually rather we'd had a low turnout boring referendum about a boring administrative body <laughs> which people who weren't wouldn't have kind of falsely engaged people on false promises either with this vision of a united Europe or with this vision of kind of tea cake town Britain alone by itself and having a brilliant time in a way this is this huge engagement this huge turnout is sort of part of I don't want to say the problem because I think it's great that people voted but it's it's very surprising that that many people did it's a, it's a reflection that this was a visceral rather than a considered decision yeah and on both sides I think it's worth noting that one of the biggest predictors of, of the likelihood that someone would vote remain was whether they had a degree now I don't think that means that clever people or think Britain should be in the European Union but it's more that I think if you've been to university you're more likely to have that kind of metropolitan outward looking outlook rather than sort of defining yourself purely in terms of 
some older conception of the nation state. But there was also a huge, I mean, this is the problem that is unclear the causation here because actually another of the biggest predictors was income, another was house ownership, another was having a passport. So those, all, those factors are all combined, all kind of interrelated. So it may be that you're more privileged because you've had a degree and therefore other factors have made you less kind of protective of the job market, less kind of suspicious of the economy within a, a European body. I think that idea of the, the job market is so interesting because there's this, um, I think this idea that if you're in a, a northern town and you're worried about immigration, you're either racist or an idiot and, and don't realise what it will do for you economically, but increasingly you look at rural areas and go, no, you, you it's not an illogical thing to be worried about a load of working age people suddenly flooding a limited limited working economy um, which isn't really a problem we have so much in cities and it's interesting to me that Sheffield was kind of the exception yeah. to the city voting and if you turn that idea on its head I mean frankly if we're talking about people who see the benefits of free movement have experienced the exciting nature of kind of Europe and of globalisation what you're really saying is there are people there who haven't had those opportunities and aid maybe as a result don't see the benefits but also the fact that they don't get that and yeah. other people do. I can see why that would make you quite angry. We, we are meant to be talking about cities, so let's kind of actually look at... Uh, let's, let's bombard you with numbers, because people love them. <laughs> um, I, I, I just did a post making some charts, so I don't see where you guys shouldn't suffer. At the, the, to the top of the league table for the most pro-European city in Britain, does anyone know what it was at the top of their heads? London? No. Nope. Was it Edinburgh? It was Edinburgh. Well done. Um, so yes, yeah, Scotland was obviously uh, Scotland voted Remain, even if the UK didn't. So that that's going to be fun. Um, but all, all the Scottish cities were quite strong Remain votes, including Dundee, which is you know in terms of its economic profile, is much closer to places like Harlow or Middlesbrough. But it, it uh, is a port town. It's it's economic. Its industries are international. Yeah, but that's but that's probably true of places like Hull as well. But Hull was Hull was at the very, I'm giving away the ending here. But Hull was at the very other end of the league table, oh. um, where barely thirty percent of people voted to remain. Other other cities near the top of the sort of remain league tables, you've got Oxford and Cambridge, both of which are obviously small university towns will be very international, very educated. London. Actually, financial services is probably a big predictor here because both London and Edinburgh are very dependent on, on financial services industry, which is quite international. But then you've got places like Brighton, which is sort of London-on-sea, Glasgow, Bristol. Da, da, da. Um, the weird ones, sort of, the ones that confuse me, you already mentioned Sheffield, but also like Leeds and Birmingham and, and Nottingham, all of which are quite big cities are still all sort of hovering around the 50% mark. They're kind of in line with the national average, whereas most cities seem to be above that. So it's kind of like Birmingham, I think, is the only city of like a million people or more in Britain that went for leave. Not to become at the ersatz Stephen Bush of this episode of this podcast, but is that to do with um, the boundaries? Because I know Sheffield incorporates a lot of um, commuter belt in its boundary whereas somewhere like Manchester doesn't so Oldham voted very strongly for leave but Oldham mm. is not incorporated in Manchester is that is that also the case with Birmingham perhaps? That's probably a factor I mean for like the, the boundary of Birmingham includes like a lot of northern and southern suburbs but not eastern and western ones because they all fall under different um, administrations um, so yeah it's pro you can probably explain a lot on boundaries to be honest but nonetheless it's 
I mean, I think that's just going to kill the whole conversation. Maybe that's probably Sorry. a sign we should move on. Sorry. Can we talk Can we talk about Belfast? Because I was in Belfast a couple of weeks ago and I was really struck by the divide between Leave and Remain voters and the sense of feeling there. And I've just heard today that there's, um, you know, post offices running out of Irish passport applications because people are worried about leave, losing their EU passport. I'm guessing it's a similar kind of thing in Glasgow and Edinburgh. You've got people gambling... If we do an, another indie ref, what 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 is happening with cities in the Celtic fringe? <laughs> That's that is that is really interesting, though, isn't it? That people are like more concerned about that their, their European identity is more important to them than their, their British one. And and really. it's in parts of Belfast where British identity is a bit of a big deal as well. You know, it's a really kind of surprising. Bit, yeah, yeah. In, in loyalist parts of East Belfast are running out of Irish passport applications. Well, one of the many weird things to have happened, over the, in, in, there's been so many of these that people just keep forgetting. Something. Oh, yeah, that happened with this, the Spanish want Gibraltar back, don't they? I've forgotten about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, one, of the, one of the many weird things we've just kind of skated over is that Ian Paisley Jr., who's obviously the son of the, the, the great unionist politician great in inverted commas, was suggesting that his constituents go and apply for Irish passports, which is just absolutely crazy. So what interested me, though, was that kind of Wales had no part in this kind of regional backlash against what maybe people are now thinking of as these English, slightly unwelcome values. So, I mean, where where did Cardiff come in your big chart, John? Um, I've got it at 60%. Pro, pro remain, which is quite. I mean, that's it's still in the top third. But considering, I mean, considering places like London were mostly kind of seventy, seventy-five percent. I guess that is slightly following the Welsh trend of of basically wanting out. Maybe. I mean, I think Cardiff is is also. It's a, obviously a big sort of creative city. There's a lot of TV made there and um, students. Yeah. yeah. So I think between those two things. But you're right. Like Wales as a whole was was surprisingly pro leave, which is weird because. Europe has given Wales a lot of money. <laughs> One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So there's, there's gratitude for you. So we've been talking about how cities are often different from the countries that contain them. 
some people think that's probably not only a good thing, but that cities actually sort of represent the, the future of uh, n- not just of their particular nations, but of the world. In 2013, the US political theorist Benjamin Barber published a book called If Mayors Ruled the World. A couple of weeks ago, he was in London uh, to speak at an event organised by our old mates at the Centre for Cities. And we were lucky enough to, to grab a few minutes of his time to talk to him for this podcast. I'm going to own up up front here that the sound quality on this thing is dreadful because I recorded it on my phone and I'm not the most technically minded person. But I am assured after significant editing, it is at the very least audible. And Ben Barber's a big enough person that it was worth persevering with. So here's how cities can save the world. This is a Brooklyn-bound A Express train. The next stop is Dykeman Street. This is a 125th Street-bound A Express train. The next stop is 59th Street, Columbus Circle. Yes, and let me say, I'm, an, I'm not an urbanist or a city guy. I'm a democratic theorist and practitioner. I've always thought the nation-state and international organizations based on it are the place to look for thinking about governance and thinking about democracy. But what changed my mind wasn't so much the good that cities are doing, although there's a lot of good they're doing, but the increasing seeming dysfunction of nation-states. And I don't just mean the dysfunction as you find in Venezuela or Brazil or Yemen. I mean a more fundamental uh, dysfunction. Nation-states were created 400 years ago as the principal instrument of government in the new Europe and eventually around the world, where the scale of cities was inadequate to the new scale of national peoples uh, and of territories. And the nation-state and the social contract said that basically citizenship and the obedience to government was a function of a sovereign state with independence, with borders and frontiers, and with the sovereign capacity to take care of the major issues, education, economic, war and peace, disease, uh, health, you name it, that most citizens cared about. And for 400 years, the nation-state has basically worked within the jurisdiction of states to deal with the primary problems that citizens have. What's changed in the late 20th century and into the 21st century is that a world of bordered states, of independence, of sovereign jurisdictions, no longer is consistent with the actual interdependent, borderless, globalized world we live in. We live in a world without borders with respect to disease, with respect to terrorism and security, with respect to climate. Climate change, we have a worldwide web, not a Leicester web or a New York uh, web. We see the migration of peoples around the world, refugees, people fleeing genocide and war, people looking for jobs. 60 million people on Earth are now displaced and moving across borders. In other words, we live in a borderless world whose primary our challenges are interdependent and we're still trying to respond to those problems with 17th century bordered sovereign nation states and so quite aside from the current dysfunctions of specific governments we live in a world where that dysfunction is institutional and historic not just about the particular problems of the time which means that there's another casualty so it's not just good governance that's a casualty it's democracy because democracy was wrapped up at its birth in the social contract in the sovereign nation state. National states were democratic states primarily in Europe. The revolutions took place in national states like France and America. Democracy has, in effect, 
placed its destiny in the hands of the nation state. So I began thinking, well, wait a minute, is this, is this hopeless? Is the nation state's done, international organizations don't work because they're based on nation states. It's, it's not the United Nations, it's the disunited nations. International organizations don't work either. What's the alternative? And I began thinking more and more about cities, which are much older, are more primeval in the sense they are the or communities, they are the or gemeinden, the Germans would say they are the original human communities. They represent a more accessible level of government for citizens. Turns out when you do polls that people trust municipal government about twice the level they trust the national governments. About 35% of people on average trust their national governments. About 70% of people on average trust their mayors and municipal. So on every level, and they're also more participatory. They're more democratic. Citizens are involved. So I began looking at cities and trying to figure out why do cities work so well. So what I found is that mayors as individuals are more localized and rooted in their communities. They're far more pragmatic, and therefore they're less interested in 19th century ideologies. They understand technology and the new technological and uh, knowledge markets because that's how new cities have to make their living in a post-industrial world. And most importantly, they understand diversity and multiculturalism because from all the way back, cities have been multicultural, centers of trade, centers of tourism. Cities have always been far more diverse and multicultural than the states they belong to. England is English. London and Leicester are not English. Mexico is Mexican, but Mexico City has a wide diversity of people. Uh, this is true all over the world. Cities are far more diverse and multicultural than the monocultural states to which they belong. And this makes them much more like the new world we live in, much more able to respond to and deal with, with migration, with refugees, with issues even of security and terrorism associated sometimes with refugees because this is where the refugees are. There are 12 million people who cross the borders without the permission of the national government. They're illegal. But in terms of the logic of the global economy, the logic of jobs, the logic of families, they're perfectly legal. Now, the national government, even including the progressive Obama, is busy deporting them. But mayors say they're here. Their families are here. They drive cars. Let's give them a license. They go to school. Let's let the kids get identity papers so they can go to school. Right now, they're using emergency rooms, a very expensive way to do uh, medical care. Let's get these papers so they, in other words, cities are saying, we will give them local visas, even though they don't have national visas, because that's the reality. Mayors are realists. Mayors are pragmatists. Mayors deal with the realities. And that makes the city much more functional and operational than national government. I mean, it's, it is very clear that Boris Johnson, for one was very pro-immigration when he was a, a mayor and exactly. somehow flipped. Yeah, now he's exactly. gone back to be a national politician. Um, but why do you think cities are kind of better at problem solving? If we think of the origins of government, we didn't originate government to decide whether we should have a market economy or a state economy. Governments were instituted among men to do things like educate young people, provide medical care, provide social security to run the economy. In other words, local government was founded to do very practical, real things. And in cities, that's still what they're there for. And mayors get that. You know, Washington, D.C. closed twice in the last two years. Twice. For two weeks at a time. Nobody even noticed. Can you imagine closing London, closing New York? You can't close cities. That's where people live. That's where they operate. And that's why mayors don't have the luxury of having ideological quarrels, they've got to, I mean, sure, they can argue about should we have the garbage picked up by private firms or public firms, but in the end, they've got to admit, they can't say, well, we can't decide that, so we just won't pick up the garbage for six months. So the reality is mayors are dealing with the real issues of governance. 
for which governments were instituted among men and women, and they have to do that job. Whereas at higher levels of jurisdiction, you have these abstract ideological and party debates and this paralysis because at that level, the real functions of government disappear and are occluded by these large, big, interesting, and curious intellectual and ideological debates. You're not just a theorist, though. You are setting up the global parliament and mayors. I was never just a theorist. I worked, in the I worked for Bill Clinton as an advisor. I worked uh, for uh, uh, for uh, a number of presidential candidates in the United States. And I've been advisor to governors and to also to others around the world. So I've always felt that the role of a theorist is also to guide and at least advise and give whatever advice they can. The elected guy is the one who has the real power and the real responsibility. You can't pretend to be that, but you can certainly try. So I've always been plugged in, but that comes to one question I didn't answer because you say, well, fine, let's go back to cities. But wait a minute, you said we need to govern the world. How can cities, which is going back to the local level, govern the world? Well, it turns out the major problems of the urban landscape, climate change, migration, transportation, are global problems. Local and global problems are the same. The ones left out of the national governments where they're dealing with neither the local nor the global. So cities have a great sense of the global world we live in. But in order to address those questions, they can't do it one by one. They have to do it together. And there are already a great number of networks out there. ICLA, the C40 Climate Cities, UCLG, Euro Cities, and every nation has its National Association of Cities, its Municipal League. But what's lacking is a genuinely political organization of mayors, one that puts muscle on the bones of city organization, one that gives cities a global voice, a platform for common action. And the Global Parliament of Mayors, which will convene in its inaugural sitting in The Hague, City of Peace and Justice, where the League of Nations was born and all the courts are, 10th to 12th of September, this fall, the Global Parliament of Mayors will meet for the first time with anywhere from 75 to 100 African mayors. They will meet for the first time and take up three issues in this first sitting. They will take up climate, and what cities can do on that, 80% of global emissions, greenhouse gas emissions come from cities. They will take up refugees, that's where all the people, the refugees are in cities, they're not in farms, and, and the issue of governance itself, some of the issues we talked about here today, what is the right of cities to govern, what is the responsibility of cities and mayors to govern, those will be the three issues. Let's put them in a room together, let's let them meet on a regular basis, let's put them in a digital platform and see how well they do. My prediction is, although that's a pretty low bar, they will do a lot better than nation states. <laughs> I mean, it kind of strikes me that, I mean, the book is called If Mayors Ruled the World, but what we're really talking about here is saving the world in some ways. It's kind of that level of ambition. Well, you're right, and that would have been a little too uh, <laughs> maybe dramatic, but you're quite right. It is not just saving the world, but saving democracy. It's about saving the world in terms of climate change and terrorism and security, but it's also about saving democracy, making citizens believe once again that their votes matter, that their engagement civically matters, that we can collectively deal with our problems and don't have to look cynically at government as part of the problem, but as it should be part of the solution because government is us and our government is finding ways to cooperate with other city governments around the world to solve our common problems.
So the first meeting of the, the new Global Parliament of Mayors is happening in September and Barber is a real evangelist for this stuff. At the same meeting where I, I, I called him to, to make that tape, uh, one of the other attendees was Peter Salisbury, the mayor of Leicester. And it took me quite a long time to corner Barber and get the a, a lot of time I had with him because he was so intent on convincing Salisbury to come to this meeting. And this is why Leicester comes up so much on that tape, if you're wondering. Um, Barbara, you you first wrote about this global parliament idea in in twenty fourteen. You know, what, what do you make of this whole plan? I think it's really impressive. I mean, Ben Barber, uh, as he kind of alludes to, wrote a book called "If If Mayors Ruled the World: Dysfunctional Nations, Rising Cities," which a lot of people do stuff like that as kind of abstract, exciting ideas type nonfiction. But I do think that the the fact they've turned it into a real and concrete plan is incredibly impre- impressive and is almost a proof of concept in itself that these people are willing to do this. Um, because, I mean, it, it's hard to kind of define what it is because actually their focus is more on kind of sharing ideas. We think of a parliament as a body that makes laws. That wouldn't be what these guys would be doing and they can kind of come and go as they please. It's not a body that you kind of sign up to and then uh, make loads of decisions within. Um, but I think the idea is basically that that they can help each other far more than, you know, a random country can help its own city in a way because they have such similar problems, such similar concerns. Um, I mean, I know this week Sadiq Khan and I think Anne Hidalgo co-wrote a letter. Mayor of Paris. Yeah, um, just about how those two cities can work together. So I think this is a, a real rising idea, actually. And actually, if anything, the recent referendum kind of shows that cities have a lot in common, especially in the way that their residents think. Yeah, Khan actually released a statement the morning after the referendum, which said explicitly to the to the million European citizens who live in London, you know, you are still welcome here. And I think that's you can't imagine the national prime minister doing that in quite the same way. That is kind of very much just sort of a city response to kind of take that overtly internationalist pro immigration response. Yeah, and it's not just kind of it all sounds very kind of positivist or they can share great ideas but also cities share a lot of the same big problems as well so say pollution is something that cities generally i mean it depends on the kind of climate where you are and the way that the winds take the pollution away but uh cities tend to suffer from it in a way that rural areas don't so for example a really great strategy for dealing with pollution would be as useful to someone in beijing as it might be to sadiq khan in london yeah i mean i suppose one of the ways in which you can see that cities do share ideas and you know frankly steal ideas from each other is the 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 way cycle hire schemes have really spread around the world in the last couple of years whereas that seemed you know even sort of five years ago that seemed quite a a, a radical idea almost um now it's sort of pretty rare to go to a major western city where there isn't some form of bike sharing scheme up there yeah and presumably i don't have the the sources for this but when people set those schemes up, they're not looking to, oh, how does our country do transport? They're looking to, how do international cities run these schemes? So in a way, I suppose the sharing that Ben Barber's talking about was kind of already happening, but to have a specific forum. And again, there's this focus on a kind of digital platform and a a sharing of ideas digitally, which kind of would make it less focused on just having to meet up once a year and more on this kind of constant exchange of ideas. The other thing I find really interesting about his ideas is that... The, the failure of the nation state. I mean, he's got a nice line, slightly uh, ag- aggressive almost, but I mean, it's a very nice line nonetheless that, you know, when Germany wanted to expand its land area, you know, Belgium and Poland felt that in quite a bad way. 
but Berlin, Brussels and Warsaw can all be great cities at the same time and sort of learn from each other. I think there is just this sort of psychological difference around the nation state where they do feel competitive because boundaries are a zero-sum game, whereas London and Paris can both thrive and actually benefit from being quite closely networked megacities. They're a couple of hours away from each other and sharing great ideas. And yeah, I suppose cities don't need to have that sense of competitiveness in that they do just have to be very practical. I mean, there was a mayor of New York called Fiorella LaGuardia, apologies if I pronounce that He's wrong. He's now got his own airport. Yeah, <laughs> um, who said there is no democratic or republican way of fixing a sewer, which is basically right. I mean, when it comes down to it, the sewer needs to be fixed. You're not going to be kind of, you're looking only for the best way to do that, really, aren't you? Yeah, I do love the way that this idea that national governments can shut down for extended periods. And halfway through that sentence, I realised that is exactly what's happening in, in the UK right now. We effectively don't have a government. So it's that's going that's, fine. That's great. It's, gonna, it's, it's going absolutely swimmingly. But yeah, you know, if you, if you didn't have someone emptying the bins every day, you do notice, in fact, the, the one time I went to a city where the, the bin men were on strike for an extended period was when I went to Naples in, I think, 2009. And you could tell as soon as you got there that something had gone horribly wrong because it was literally in the air. Whereas, you know, when the, the federal government in Washington, D.C. shuts down, it's a while before. I mean, it does eventually sort of kick in the problems from that. Like, I think some of the, the problems that, that Belgium has around its uh, security services at the moment have been attributed to the fact that there was just nobody coordinating security policy for a very long time. But that really took a couple of years to show its head, whereas something like the bins or the sewers or whatever, you do spot pretty much instantly. Do you Do you buy this idea that we can actually solve problems like climate change in cities, though? I mean, is, it, is, is this enough? Or, or is this just the latest way in which we're deluding ourselves? I think my instinct is probably that this will overridingly help cities themselves, at least at first, because, I mean, again, you you kind of care the most just about the things that directly affect people where you live. So you might fix a pollution problem on Oxford Street. You're not going to fix climate change in the world, let alone in the UK. Um, so I don't know, but I think the indirect effect might be very good because in general, like things that help very concentrated bodies of people tend to help the world as well. I suppose also there's an argument that just the sheer number of people that live in cities, I mean, it's, obviously, as ever, mm. it depends how you count, but, you know, on, on some measures, more than half the world's population is now urban. If you can cut the carbon footprint of each of those people by a third, that is a major impact on climate change. Yeah, and I mean, urbanism in a way is kind of an exercise of efficiency, and this project is basically a way of making cities more efficient because... If you fix something more easily using someone else's plan, you've saved money. If you cut pollution, you're helping slow climate change. You're kind of preserving your resources. So if we can preserve, if we can preserve resources within those areas where, as you say, half of people live, then maybe you can save the world. We'll see. I think it's also worth noting that it's, you know, it's not just a sort of jolly for all the mayors because if if it if it was, they probably wouldn't be going to the Hague. It's not known as a. <laughs> It's not known as a party, sort of party capital, city. Yeah. Yeah. Secretly yeah. just a male stag do. <laughs> they're, they're not all going to be hanging around by, by the pool next to the Court of Justice or something. <laughs> You've been listening to Skylines, a City Metric podcast. 
It was presented by John Elledge and Barbara Speed and produced by Rachel Brown. Our theme music is Dust from the Stars by Charlie Charles. You also heard The Weather by Destinazione Altrove and Embryonic Waves, composed by Matthew Reitzel. All music in the show is licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast and on iTunes, where you'll also find two more shows by our excellent colleagues, Seriously and the New Statesman Podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps and geography you could possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter and on Facebook, where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. And if you wanted to leave a review to tell your friends how lovely we are, well, we'd very much appreciate that. Thanks for listening. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. 지하 서울역입니다. 내리실 문은 오른쪽입니다. 명동. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.